And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin, sponsored by GEHA. Thanks for joining us on this Friday, December 1st, 2023. Seven minutes past the hour. I'm Jared Serbu, filling in for Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors are Daisy Thornton and Darius Lauderdale. Coming up on this hour of the Federal Drive, still a lot of work to do to gain the trust of VA whistleblowers. Also, data takes center stage and human capital management at the Department of the Interior. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of the Federal Drive. First up, though, the Social Security Administration is reorganizing how it manages and oversees technology. The agency is renaming the Office of Systems to the Office of the CIO as part of its effort to push for more innovation and modernization. Patrick Newbold is the new acting CIO of SSA. Executive Editor Jason Miller and Federal Drive host Tom Temin caught up with Newbold at the recent ELC conference before SSA announced that reorganization. They discussed how the agency is driving digital transformation. We are looking at modernizing our system and, and not just our system. Again, I go back is the, the reason we're modernizing our systems and the reason we're modernizing our IT is because we're trying to address a business need or improve a business process. So the way we're approaching uh, digital modernization is looking at what problems do we need to solve and improve, and then we're aligning uh, our goals and our investments around doing that. For example, um, one of our priorities is multi-factor authentication, and that uh, EO came out. It, it came out for us um, as a, a mandate, but we necessarily didn't have resource for that. Fortunately, we uh, were able to leverage the TMF, we submitted a proposal and uh, was able to uh, get a approval for that award. And, and as a result, um, around 315 of our systems, um, we are um, on a good path of getting those things uh, MFL, MFA compliant. Yeah, on that idea of modernization of IT, there's also just the basic function of paying out the benefits every week. And in that sense, you're like the National Finance Center yeah. or the Interior Business Center, only several orders of magnitude bigger in what you pay out in the frequency. And it used to be just a matter of mainframe capacity planning and how much tape would we need to get these checks printed. What's going on on the basic bread and butter front of the infrastructure for the main mission, which is getting millions and millions of checks out week after week? Getting the right paycheck to the right person at the right time. Right? Easy to say. Easy to say. Hard, hard to do. But I, we've been doing it very well, and we're continuing to modernize. Over the past year, we stood up a, a benefits modernization PMO. Um, we put an executive in front of that. I mean, that sole purpose and that sole goal is to modernize our systems. We want to get them into a cloud, from mainframe to the cloud, off the COBOL, um, a legacy code, to a more modern code base. And, and while doing that, providing a very seamless, automated as possible process for our employees, uh, the ones who are uh, processing the claims, and then our online um, capability for the public to, to seamlessly uh, apply for those benefits. Because they, the first uh, hiccup in that system you know you'll hear from Capitol Hill in about oh. 12 milliseconds. Yeah, we will. That idea of, of the mainframe modernization, that, that entire effort, you all, I think, last year at this time or, or shortly after had released an IT modernization strategy. Mm-hmm. Th- these things are living documents. Right. How is that kind of, whether it's officially evolved or how have you evolved it just internally to say, okay, this was the path, now that path is a little to the right or a little to the left right. now. Has, has there been some changes or some th- thinking in, yeah. in terms of how you want to continue along? Yes, we've been, over the past year or so, um, really been focused on internally mapping out our next phase of that modernization plan. And, and you know, to me, modernization never truly ends. Right. Right? And, and I like your statement, it's always a living document. But one of the things that I think we're doing different 
um, in terms of our organization is we're trying to modernize our culture, if that makes sense. We're putting forth some, some principles that I hope to share with you soon that we're really trying to drive our workforce to move towards to help us modernize, right, as we are make, designing these products, are we designing these services. Um, there's some very key things that we want to make sure that the culture is, is, is instilling in their processes to include things like a retiring technical debt, managing technical debt, to include uh, things like integrating and removing silos from our systems so they can talk together better and provide better data and more quality data. So that's one of the things we're focused on internally now that I think once we uh, lay out a, a more robust uh, implementation plan, we'll have more success in um, delivering that because we changed the culture. Now, a lot of these changes will have changed the way that people work. It's going to change the processes for your own employees. And are you getting union buy-in with this? I mean, how do you make sure that they come along because they can really accelerate it if they're with you and they can frankly make it never happen if they're not? Yeah, I I would just say that, that, you know, one one of the things that we practice in the SSA is just we're having an open uh, dialogue with the union because our employees are – represented and we want to make sure we're doing the right thing for the agency and our employees so we just continue to have that dialogue i want to go back to something you said when you talk about the workforce and the culture and that i know you said maybe you have something to share with us in a little bit but let me just ask you you, when we play the game with the buzzword bingo game you mentioned ai so thank you for that you didn't mention devsecops so i'll throw i'll I'll put that on the board is that part of the the change that you're starting to look at so how do we make sure they're trained in a way to do that iterative development that we're not stuck in the world of even if you're not using mainframes, the mainframe kind of thinking where, oh, set it and leave it, and we have to continue to iterate. Is that all part of this discussion? That's absolutely part of the discussion. And, in fact, since the last year we talked, we have had significant percentage, uh, I say a good percentage, of our um, new software rolled out in the DevOps fashion. And what we have seen is uh, faster uh, time to roll out, um, better quality of the, of the uh, as we um, doing the testing, um, and we're going to continue to evolve that. Is, have you set up a specific shop for DevSecOps or, or iterative development or Agile, whatever we're going to call it? Yeah, we, we have a, a, a shop who is uh, responsible for kind of setting out the, the DevSecOps. I find that, that a lot of it was cultural. Um, and there's some tools and things you got to support it for the automation purposes. But it's culture. So we set up a team within our uh, office systems, my office systems, that's focused on, on, on that. But also, you know, for a while now, we've been in in tune to, to um, agile development and really looking at incremental. Uh, we have a mindset that we're, we're going to think big, we're going to start small, and we're going to iterate, and, and that's the approach that we're taking. Are there specific projects you're aiming for to say, okay, that makes more sense to, to use this approach for? Mm-hmm. Some of the older systems, maybe it's harder. Maybe you have some newer systems that are already there, but how are you prioritizing, okay, that's the one that makes sense to, to, to apply Agile or move it off a waterfall, or yeah. that one doesn't quite make sense yet, but we want to get there. How, how are you looking at that rationalization and optimization? Yeah. What, what we're looking at is projects or products that are transform or grow in nature. In other words, we're you're modernizing it or we're brand new services. Those are the ones we're targeting to, to go through this new process. I can give you an example of one. Please um, do, yeah. Um, we recently, this year, uh, rolled out our enterprise scheduling solution. It's a self-scheduling capability um, for the public to be able to go online and make their own appointment. They need to replace a card, a service that was not in place until, yeah. until now. 
and um, we used that process. And you know, in, in less than in just about a year, we were able to uh, uh, roll out to a subset of our regions. Got really good feedback, made some changes, iterated, and now it's rolled out to all 50 states, and um, that service is available for the public today. So you develop small, try it, and then scale right. fast when you know that it works. That's right. That's right. Is there, is there been a big lesson learned from that experience that you're now saying, okay, that's a, a, an application, and not we're applying that lesson learned more broadly? Yeah, we, we are. You know, any services that we're, you know, rolling out from a public-facing perspective, and I'll give you another example, one that we're doing this that's it's only rolled out to a certain region now, the Boston region, is our ability to um, um, upload documents. Um, we rolled out to the Boston region only because we want to test it out, um, get some feedback in the process of making those adjustments, and then we'll roll out a little broader. But I think that approach, um, you, you, you know, you, you get some feedback. Remember I, I told you earlier we're going to be um, co- um, customer-focused and centric. Get that feedback, make iterations, and, and roll out. And, and so, so it worked very well for our scheduling system, and it's, it's, it's seeming to work good for this upload. When you say upload documents, does that mean yeah. employees can do it from the field offices, or can okay. the Employee. public do it yeah. online? The, the public has an uh, ability to upload documents to, for their transactions through a phone, a mobile device, or a home computer. And how do you differentiate that it's only people in the, in the New England region? Does it go by IP address or just by their home address? Yeah, the, the, the way we roll this out um, is that it's um, employee-initiated, so only the, the employees within the region. I see. Um, when, when, when they need to get a form or, or something completed, they'll submit a request to that customer. Customer will take, get it, you know, authenticate in security, and then have the ability so to So there's an it. email back uh, it, it's a link. A link. Uh, it's yeah. a link that it can go in and, and, okay. and upload documents. Is, is this... Uh, as you said, you'll get your feedback, you'll iterate, you'll improve mm-hmm. upon it. Is the goal for 2024 to roll out much broader? Uh, uh, yes, yes. Yeah. The, goal, the goal is to roll out um, much broader. But more importantly than that, the goal is to take the feedback that we got and incorporate that and roll the, the improvements out as well. That's Patrick Newbold, the acting CIO of the Social Security Administration. You can hear his conversation with Jason Miller and Tom Temin at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still ahead on Federal News Network, data takes center stage in human capital management at the Department of the Interior. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbu filling in for Tom. Back on the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbu, filling in for Tom. The Department of the Interior is a big, complex organization. Nearly a dozen different bureaus, and in some cases with very different missions. But there are a lot of reasons to try to gain a better understanding of that large, diverse workforce. The Interior Department is working to unlock data across all of those bureaus to take a more strategic approach to human capital management. To talk about how that's all working, we're glad to welcome Robin Reese. She's the Director for Strategic Human Capital Initiatives at Interior. She talked with me as part of our Federal Insights series on data in human capital transformation. I would say broadly, human capital data is really central to making much of our decisions because we have um, 70,000 employees across 2,400 operating locations. And understanding that workforce composition the types of jobs they do, where they're located geographically, what we're seeing in terms of bringing people in, keeping them, keeping them happy, 
um, watching people leave. I mean, it informs so much of what we do in order to meet the missions of the public. I should also say that at the department, we have employees in almost every one of the jobs that is in the Office of Personnel Management occupation books. There are about 350 occupations in the federal government and we employ people in about 350 jobs across the Department of the Interior. So it's quite a large array of types of positions and skills that are required to carry out the missions. Yeah, that, that, that was one of the biggest things that struck me as I was thinking about preparing for, for our discussion here today. Enormously diverse mission set across this department, right? I think 11 different bureaus, all with different functions and, and different missions, plus all that geographic diversity that you just talk, talked about. So at the department level, when you're thinking about trying to serve all of these diverse needs, how, how do you think about the vast quantities of data that, that you must have available to you and how to make it useful for all those diverse mission sets? Yeah, I think this is an important part of the conversation here. I think that, like you said, the department has 11 bureaus and a number of offices. And in many ways, the bureaus are able to do their own human capital data analytics and analytics on other other things as well. What they're not able to do for themselves is to look across their peer bureaus or component offices and benchmark against each other. That is the unique value proposition that the department can provide our components. And so our focus really has been on what I'll say, I think is a common way of talking about unlocking human capital data, um, opening up that data at the enterprise level where we have access to the system so that we can be looking, how does one bureau compare to the other when we're looking at potentially the same occupation, but retention or hiring new folks, for example. I think that's been in my experience over the last couple of years where we've differentiated ourselves and are starting to add value to the bureaus beyond what they can do for themselves. You know, in the past, about a year ago, our human capital leaders, our Chico, all the human capital leaders across the bureaus came together and decided together that one of our common priorities was going to be human capital data analytics. And so we really have been working aggressively to get access to the data we have, whatever quality it is, show it, let's make it better, right? And then uh, provide out whatever sets of analyses and visualizations that could do one of a number of things, either A, reduce the burden to the bureaus for manual data calls that have to come up through the department and to other agencies, B, enable those bureaus to benchmark against their peers. Oftentimes we'll see uh, like federal government benchmarking, uh, small agencies versus small agencies, large agencies versus large agencies. Within the department, we like to know how our friends are doing because maybe we can leverage some best practices they have. That's an opportunity space we now have because we can look at this data across the different bureaus and mission spaces. And then third, what we're really trying to do is position ourselves to more effectively and in a more mature posture, be able to advance our collective efforts to strategically align and support the priorities of the department um, because the missions don't get done without people. And so we really need to know what's working, what's not working, where we have opportunity space, where maybe we don't so that we don't waste energy over there and make sure that when we deploy our resources and pick our plans and priorities, we're picking the right ones that are going to have the most greatest effects toward the outcomes we're pursuing. When, when, you, when you talk about unlocking the human capital data, I just want to make sure I'm adequately understanding the challenge there. Is it just the usual thing that we see across many federal agencies that the systems are stovepiped and were not originally designed for sharing and you just got to overcome that? 
That's definitely part of it. I think part of it is understanding that there is no such thing as one system for human capital data. I mean, we will always and probably should always. I come from an IT background. I grew up in the information technology field, and I came from the National Science Foundation's IT group over to Department of the Interior a handful of years ago. But I, I think there's a feeling of one system that we want our customers to have. But that feeling of one system comes with interconnections between multiple systems. So part of unlocking human capital data is understanding that the data is in various systems and being able to bring access it and bring light to that data is one part of it. And so where in the, in the absence of an integration of a system, for example, there are other technical ways we can join that data and do something with it, right? That's, there are other architectures that we can employ in order to bring data to the middle and do things with it. And that's part of what we're doing to unlock the data. We're bringing data to the middle from different systems, joining it, and then showing a more full picture, right? The other part of unlocking um, human capital data is having the business language and the understanding of the human capital business process in order to do the analysis and find out what's happening. What strategies are you employing that may or may not be effective as we look at this data and the story that it tells? And I think that can be translated, honestly, to any function. You can only go so far with pulling the data together and creating the visualization. You must have the language and the ability to interact with the subject matter experts in order to truly unlock what that means in terms of um, strategizing and using evidence to triangulate a decision space. And what is that skill set that, that, that can do that, that can look at that data and, as you said, talk back to the people who could actually use it? Is that a data science focus? What, what, what types of people do this? So I think when, when I think about how this works best, we have a team that's working out. There's no one type of person that can do this. You, you do need your data scientist or your analytics person who can access the data and work it, right? You also need somebody from the IT side who maybe understands where the system comes from and can help you get access to that data. Then you need a subject matter expert and a different subject matter expert for each little phase, depending on what topic you're working on. And then finally, there's that, to me, a facilitator that brings that all together that can maybe speak across functional languages, understands a little bit of the data, understands a little bit of the business process and help those people talk to each other. So the the best in breed way, I believe, of putting together data analytics capabilities for an organization is having a mechanism to bring those matrix teams together so that no one person is trying to just do an analysis and pump it out and then it has no value on the other end. How far along would you say you are in the whole unlocking the data project and presenting it as, a, as an enterprise in a way that you can use as an enterprise? Uh, tell us about some success stories that you may have had so far. Yeah, I'll say that I'm my own toughest critic, as we all are. And so my first answer to that is, I think we're early in our journey and we have a long way to go to truly unlocking the data because the, the vision is large, right? It's, it's probably a decades long journey, if not more. That said, if I truly reflect on where we were and how far we've come, I think in just a few short years, two years or so, we've really um, uh, established ourselves in the Office of Human Capital as an organization that can develop enterprise-wide visualizations. We can crowdsource the feedback for those visualizations, like I said, through subject matter experts, 
in the same um, virtual space with the data, both building and deploying visualizations. And I think we have a pretty robust capability. We have a, a number of uh, visualizations that already support common things we look at in our workforce data, you know, new hires, retention, separation, exit data. We're, we're always looking at FEBS and we have capabilities around the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey. We're pretty proud of what we've accomplished there. And then in, in some cases, we've even gone a little beyond the typical, right? So I'm not an HR practitioner by trade. I grew up, I'm a business person and I grew up in IT and I came over to human capital because there's a lot of need for IT and human capital. We need to really truly understand the work and we can't just sit from our ivory tower and try to deploy it into the human capital space. And I think that when I think about the, the work that we've done to bring to bear data in this space, I think we actually have made quite a lot of strides, but I say that I'm not a HR practitioner to say that when we talk about workforce planning or succession planning or skills development, we are often thinking about common nomenclature like career pathways or career ladders. We hear these words a lot in the federal government where if we liken that to private sector, we would think about starting out in finance and becoming a chief financial officer someday, right? You work yourself through that pathway of the ladder. And one of the things that we did with our team of capital data is we tried to look for common pathways that were not career pathways. So what I mean by that is within the department at the enterprise level, I have data on where our employees are going. I know if they're working for one year one year, a different year the next year, a different program the next year. And we can see where they're moving between jobs, occupational series. Robin Reese is the Director for Strategic Human Capital Initiatives at the Department of the Interior. She talked with me as part of our Federal Insights series on the role of data in human capital management. To hear the full conversation and the rest of the series, go to federalnewsnetwork.com and search Insights. Still ahead on Federal News Network, still a lot of work to do to gain the trust of VA whistleblowers. That's next on The Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbu, filling in for Tom. Thanks for listening to Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. I'm Jared Serbu, filling in for Tom. The VA's Office of Accountability and Whistleblower Protection, set up in the aftermath of the department's secret waitlist scandal, got off to a very rocky start. It had scandals of its own. According to the Government Watchdog Project on Government Oversight, VA has reformed OAWP in ways that have made real progress toward building whistleblower confidence, but there's still a whole lot of work to do. Joel Spielberger is policy counsel at POGO. He testified before the House Veterans Affairs Committee about what's needed a few weeks ago, and he's with us now to continue that conversation. Joe, thanks for talking to us today, and and I think the place I'd like to begin is, I, I thought you made a pretty compelling case in your testimony that really the issues at OAWP are structural. And no matter how good the leadership is, how ethical it is, you're always going to have these structural problems. Take us through what you think those are. Absolutely. So as you know, OAWP was established in 2017. And it's important to note that a big impetus for creating this office was the 2014 waitlist scandal where whistleblowers played such a critical role in exposing neglect and abuse that an IG report um, attributed to the deaths of at least 40 veterans in the Phoenix 
VA healthcare system itself. And so I think it's important uh, to understand that, you know, within the context of this issue, we are really talking about the VA's ability to provide veterans with the highest standard of care. And so going back to when the office was first established, POGO and other whistleblower organizations expressed great concerns about the lack of independence, about housing a central whistleblower office within the agency. We felt that it would not, without that lack of independence, it would not be able to provide the level of accountability that was and still is so sorely needed. So OEWP has this really important role and mandate to investigate allegations of whistleblower retaliation by VA supervisors and allegations of misconduct and poor performance. And unfortunately, over the past six years or so, we've seen just a colossal failure to protect whistleblowers and to hold senior leaders accountable. And so the two main structural deficiencies that we've identified are, one, OEWP lacks its own independent in-house legal counsel. So that means that historically it's had to rely on the Office of General Counsel. Of course, this is a basic conflict of interest because although both the Office of General Counsel and OAWP are housed within the agency, they have very different missions. The Office of Accountability and Whistleblower Protection, of course, is tasked with conducting objective, fact-based investigations while the Office of General Counsel's primary role is to protect the interests of its client, which is the VA, and that can include limiting its legal liability, for instance. Now, we have heard that recently uh, the VA has changed some of the Office of General Counsel's role in this process. For instance, we've heard that OGC no longer weighs in during the investigation phase. Assuming that that's accurate, that would be a big improvement in practice. The other main structural issue is that OEWP lacks the ability to enforce its recommendations. And so all that they can do is make recommendations for the VA to discipline senior officials and hold them accountable. And we've seen, again, over the past few years, the VA's inability or lack of interest in actually holding its senior leaders accountable. So, uh, for example, in the 2021 uh, House Veterans Affairs Oversight and Investigation Subcommittee hearing on this issue, then-ranking member Chris Pappas reported that uh, that year OEWP had made 15 recommendations for discipline against senior officials specifically who engaged in whistleblower retaliation, but the VA only fully implemented one of those recommendations. The GAO has also reported on some of these cases where discipline that comes from OAWP has been you know, pretty strong and substantive, but the VA, oftentimes relying on OGC's advice, severely mitigates that discipline to where it is just basically a slap on the wrist. And so those are the two structural reforms that we think that the office really needs because historically it has not produced the results that we actually want to see. Um, back on the OGC issue, you know, even if we take them perfectly at their word that there has been some internal reorganization and restructuring that that makes it more independent in practice, 
I think there's an argument that that almost doesn't matter because so much of this is a perception issue. If you want whistleblowers to feel comfortable coming forward, it has to really look like an independent organization. So if people think that there is a conflict with OGC, that's almost the whole ballgame, isn't it? Absolutely. And this has been another key part of this. You know, POGO has done investigative reporting on the VA and on OEWP since its establishment. And again, going back to the 2014 waitlist scandal, Pogo partnered with Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans for America, for instance, and basically um, operated a hotline for people to submit anonymous complaints and their experiences. And in just over a month, our organizations heard from more than 800 different people across the country. And a big part of that was not just reporting instances of medical neglect and substandard levels of care, but specifically about this culture of fear and retaliation that existed within the agency at large. And so you're absolutely right that if there's a lack of trust in the agency and especially among offices and leaders who are tasked with protecting whistleblowers, of course, you know, that just creates and exacerbates this chilling effect that really prevents people from coming forward and making the disclosures that we know are so instrumental. Um, correct me if I'm wrong on this, but I think that decision to rely on OGC is a choice, right? I mean, that's that's not something that's in statute. Maybe it's a funding constraint or something. Do we know anything about why they've continued to rely on the, the department's own general counsel? It is a choice. It's, it's, yeah, nothing is mandated by law. It's just been this internal practice. Over the past couple of years, OAWP has started hiring its own attorneys within that office. Of course, the VA can also rely on attorneys with the inspector general's office, but that's, that's historically been the practice. And another point you make in your testimony is that, you know, again, even if the current administration is doing things better than in the, the earlier days, Anything can be undone. Whatever progress that has been made can be undone very, very quickly in the future. So what does Congress need to do to solidify whatever good things have happened in recent years? Absolutely. So, you know, I mean, we really appreciate Congress's continued focus on this issue, but respectfully, it's time to stop talking and to actually act. You know, we've seen the historical failures Um, that have existed for such a long period of time. I feel like every day there's a new scandal coming out of the VA or or one of its facilities across the country. And, And we go back to these fundamental structural reforms that OAWP needs. So what we are calling on Congress to do is to return to legislation that passed the House last Congress. It was a bipartisan bill sponsored by then- Subcommittee Chairman and Ranking Members Chris Pappas and Tracy Mann. It was very uncontroversial, passed the House under suspension of the rules, and it would have, among other things, provided OAWP with its own independent legal counsel, and also it would have shifted investigative authority from OAWP to the Office of of Special Counsel that has decades of experience conducting these types of investigations. On the trust issue that you mentioned earlier, I, I, I almost wonder if the reputation of this office isn't just fatally tainted and it needs to just be replaced with something with a different name. Is is, is that something to consider, you know, start over with, with a new independent accountability organization within the department? I think if we don't 
see the results that we need to see that's worth considering. I don't think that we're at that point yet. I think we are hopefully optimistic about new leadership within OAWP and some of these internal improvements that we've seen the office made. Again, we want to make sure that any improvements are codified so that they can't be undone. And we think that these two key reforms, establishing an independent legal counsel and shifting investigative authority would go a long way to getting the results that we want to see. So I think we're still hoping that there will be improvements, but if these reforms are made and we're still having the same conversation and whistleblowers and employees are not being protected, then I think, yes, we would definitely consider that conversation. Joe Spielberger is policy counsel at the Project on Government Oversight. You can hear this conversation anytime at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still ahead on Federal News Network, fewer federal contractors chasing an increasing number of federal dollars. There's a lot to chase in 2024. The details next on the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbu filling in for Tom. Back on the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbu filling in for Tom. For the big federal contracts on the horizon in 2024, not a whole lot is changing when it comes to what the government plans to buy. But there are still a lot of opportunities for contractors as agencies recompete some of their biggest buying vehicles. Those are some of the takeaways from Deltec's annual list of top contracting opportunities. Ashley Sanderson is a senior research manager at Deltec, and she joins us now to talk more about the 2024 edition. Ashley, thanks for joining us. And, and before we delve into some of the top opportunities that you all identified this year, I'd like to spend a little bit of time talking about some of the trends that you talk about in the report as well. Starting with overall contracting spend, what have you been seeing over the last several years as you've examined the data? So contracting spend has gone, it went down in 2021, as we saw, um, but it has been growing. We do not know contract spend history in a full view right now for fiscal year 2023 because of the delay of DOD reporting. So that'll be out at the end of December. Um, But what we do see is that there is some growth from fiscal year 2021 into fiscal year 2022. I think we're spending roughly a little under 700 billion in contract spend for fiscal year 2022. The importance of that is it kind of helps us have an idea of what we're looking at for the coming fiscal year. And if there's more contract spend, there tends to be more activity, there's less delays, less slows, less cancellation of requirements because it seems like they're spending. Um, This year may be interesting because we are going in under continuing resolution. Um, We also have what's coming up in January and February. So um, I would predict despite the spending boating pretty well for fiscal year 2024, that it's not going to be immediate. It's probably going to be a slow uptick. Yeah. And to that point, there are so many unknowns about the coming fiscal year. It would be unwise to make two specific predictions about it. But but one thing that you did is took a look at what we know about the, the effect of past years in which we've had CRs and how that tends to affect quarterly spend. Tell us a bit about that, because it's probably instructive, at least to some extent, for what's going to happen in 24. Yeah. So what we see with past years when we look at quarterly spending is spending tends to really happen more towards the end of the year. So you're seeing more happening in Q3 and Q4 when it comes to quarterly spend. About 19 to 21 percent of annual spend 
um, happened when operating under the continuing resolution, and then you see the rest of it happening once everything's actually passed in their appropriations. Um, 2019 is that weird outlier because we had partial appropriations that were approved at the beginning of the fiscal year um, for labor, HHS, and their UC spending, nobody else was spending until later in the year when the second round of appropriations happened in February, which is what we may be looking at right now, um, potentially. And, and then last thing I wanted to ask you about in terms of overall trends was um, participation uh, in contracting. Looks like a lot more dollars, but fewer companies, basically, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. That's definitely what we're seeing. Um, but it's nothing to be discouraged about. But it is a trend that we're seeing due to some outlying factors. There's the category management push, right? So they're trying to consolidate more. They are trying to uh, remove duplicative efforts. Everything's supposed to be streamlined. Because of that, what we see is the government is doing a lot more consolidation in their contracts. They are choosing to procure things under already existing contracts. They're not having these new competitions as much anymore. Um, the other thing that we're seeing is there is a lot more compliance regulations that are coming out, right? You have CMMC now. Um, I was doing a report back a while about the infrastructure bill. So if you look at architecture, engineering, and construction requirements, um, there's a lot more that's coming out now with the infrastructure bill where you have to use particular materials, you have to do a particular practice, it has to be renewable. So all of those things, while great, are also expensive for vendors. So it does kind of push some vendors out to, you know, maybe not be able to participate, or it's just slower on the uptake because they have to get all of this compliance under their belt prior to even being able to compete. And then when it comes to the meat of the report, which is the top opportunities for 24, I mean, I'll, I'll just say that this is better suited for reading than, than audio consumption. So people can read it on your website, but, but let's, let's try and do a summary if we can. What jumps out at you when you look at those top opportunities for 24? What's most, in, what's most interesting? Let's try and summarize a bit if we can. So what's interesting about this year's report is that it is a pretty even mix. Uh, it's, a, you know, about half and half defense and civilian, um, which we have been seeing for the past few years. A long time ago, we used to see a lot more heavyweight in defense opportunities, um, but slowly it sort of moved into where there's more civilian heavyweights in there. Um, part of that has to do with the lack of new requirements coming out as frequently. We're also seeing that there are recompetes and there's actually only one new requirement on the list. Um, that's a new requirement for a construction opportunity for the Department of Navy. Um, it's building a building. So of course there's no incumbent on that. It's new construction. Every single other requirement is a uh, requirement that they have procured in the past and it already has vendors who are working on it. Now that can be looked at sometimes as a negative aspect, right? Because it might be harder to get in on these contracts. You think there's someone who already has their footing, someone always has been doing this work. However, there's a benefit maybe, right? You can you can glean a lot of information from historical information then, right? You have access to past solicitations. You can look at past performance. You can see where the money is going, who's getting these task orders, who's not. Um, and to to sort of bring that together with what we were talking about earlier with the category management stuff and then sort of streamlining and have fewer and fewer new requirements, a good way around that is subcontracting, right? So even if you can't get into prime, you can get into subcontract on um, 
a lot of these larger requirements. Um, so actually getting back to your point about there really not being that many new requirements here, is that a negative sign for companies this year? I don't think so at all. Um, I would definitely keep a positive outlook. You know, there is still money to be spent here. These contracts are worth millions of dollars. The government's still going to be spending money, right? Um, where you may want to step back is if there are not as many new requirements, um, there's not as many things going on, there is a slowdown because of the continuing resolutions. So take your time, get familiar with the compliance requirements, be smart about what you are going to pursue, um, get to know your customer and exactly what they're looking for. And like we said earlier, with the consolidation, get familiar with subcontracting and how to do that, look into teaming opportunities. Um, and certainly not a time to be discouraged. It just might take a little bit more legwork right now. Ashley Sanderson is a senior research manager at Dell Tech. We'll post a link to their annual list of top contracting opportunities at federalnewsnetwork.com. The Department of Veterans Affairs is setting a new standard for cybersecurity across its networks. VA is shifting some of its systems to a continuous authority to operate. It's a trend that's already happening across the Defense Department. The idea is VA will keep checking in to make sure those systems uphold cybersecurity requirements, rather than just checking off that those standards are met once before their launch. For more details, Federal News Network's Jory Heckman talked with Deputy Chief Information Officer for VA's Product Engineering Service, Kerry Lee. First, though, you'll hear from VA's Chief Information Security Officer, Lynette Sherrill. From a cybersecurity standpoint, what we really want to use this for is to give an automated enterprise risk view. So with the ever-changing threat landscape that we're dealing with in cybersecurity today, one of the things that is very hard to keep up with is how is the risk posture of all of our systems changing? With the, the scale and scope of VA, it's difficult when we have a zero-day vulnerability come out to immediately know what is the impact of that on the 1.6 million assets we have on our network, right? Or the, you know, I think right now we're running about 900 ATO systems. So what this integration and automation is going to allow us to do eventually is that would immediately come into the environment. We'd know immediately these are our six most critical systems impacted by this zero-day vulnerability, and we'd be able to focus our resources on those systems to make sure that we could maintain a risk posture that's acceptable to the organization. And I think that's what it offers people like Carrie authorizing officials is that automation and that quick visibility. I know for me as the CISO, that is super important so that I can see that immediately. And Carrie, what about you? You know, from a development perspective, having that automation there that Lynette is talking about also allows us to develop, get our code out faster and have our developers think about security from the beginning versus tacking it on at the end. It also frees up a lot of people from manually entering into our GRC systems, compliance information, which can take a lot of resources to be able to focus on higher valuable tasks such as actually developing systems or maybe some of those people that are entering the information into the GRC tool now once we have automation can focus on security and doing things like being assessors or you know working on CSOC or something like that so it will free up a lot of resources to be able to work on other things and since we are in a resource constrained environment there's not enough security people or IT people to meet the 
the needs right now that this will really help. I want to circle back to that workforce piece in a moment, but I do want to just kind of underscore this whole culture theme, you know, getting those developers on the same page as the security folks and you know, making sure they're reading from the same sheet of music, so to speak. And it just in terms of that culture and how that's evolved over at VAOIT, I just wonder if you could speak more to that piece of things. I can speak to really opening up the conversation between the developer teams and the security teams. Like I think Lynette mentioned on stage, it used to be developers tried to bypass security or get around security. But really in this partnership of working on the ongoing authorization, the continuous ATO, it really opened up those communication channels and got the teams talking about how to help each other and really make a difference together instead of oh, we don't want to listen to security, and security is like, oh, we don't like what those developers are doing. So it's changed the dialogue between the teams. So culture change is the hardest change, right, in any enterprise or in any any organization. And in VA, it's extremely difficult because we're such a large organization. But culture change has three areas, right? You have knowledge, the attitude, and then the behavior. And it's pretty easy to change people's knowledge. Carrie talked about it with education. You can educate people on why this is a better process. And you can even get their buy-in as to, hey, yeah, it is a better process. But where they have to invest is their behavior. Their behavior has to change to complete the culture change. And if they're not going to change their behavior, then you're not going to drive the culture change. So you have to get them excited enough about the change that they take their knowledge and they take their buy-in and actually use that to change their own behaviors as well as their peers. So I think that's where it really starts to come together. And because I think key to that is making sure that the leadership team is exhibiting those same values as well, because then that makes the workforce follow along a little easier because they see it's safe to do so. I wanted to follow up on the facial recognition for clinicians and you know, rather than have that PIV card, that credential to move forward that you would have clinicians face to proceed with right, you know, right. all of the work that they need to do, that's probably early stages there. But in terms of the timeline and in terms of next steps, what are you hoping to do and how are you looking to make that possible? So with the administration's executive order 14028, they gave us additional flexibilities with the FIDO2 authenticators. And that's what we're looking to leverage to do this. So it wouldn't be elimination of PIV cards at all, but it's building on top of the issuance of the PIV card as a trusted source identity. And then from that, you can derive a new authenticator or a new credential or a new certificate. And uh, much like we use facial recognition to log in an iPhone today, that's the type of experience we want to give to a clinical staff. And actually, we're pretty close. I mean, we will be running active pilots throughout 24 with clinical staff. That's how close we are. And in hopes that we can begin to roll into production pretty quickly. I mean, we have in VA, we have a really good PIV card utilization. We're more than 95% of of people logging into our network every single day use a PIV card, but when you take the denominator that we've got more than 650,000 end users logging into our network every day, we still got about 30,000 that a day that use user ID and password that we have to get after. So there's a couple dynamics that we're going to be using and leveraging the FIDO2 flexibilities that we have. And one of them is going to be how do we make a more frictionless authentication process for our clinical staff? In addition to that, how do we get that, that last 
30,000 users, making sure they are using multi-factor as well when they log into our network because they have very valid reasons for not. Some of them are reasonable accommodation. Some of it is a sterile environment field. Some of it, there are some very real complicating factors that cause that. But I really, again, it's the technology is finally there where we can utilize the technology to provide a better experience for our end users. That's really exciting to hear. In terms of that executive order, it's Mm -hmm. pretty big. It's 100 plus pages. Uh, And I know that right off of that EO, the VA has announced kind of AI tech sprints, things to improve that experience for the clinicians, whether it's, you know, additional opportunities for VA, whether it's, you know, getting on top of this emerging technology and the challenges side of things, what are just kind of next steps that are in your mind for implementation of that EO? So we're doing a lot with that. For those that don't know, just a little, some stats. That executive order has spawned 12 mandates, which are OMB memos that have come out and embedded within each one of those memos. You total it all together, we're running just over 100 different requirements into the organization. And that's not a bad thing, but you do have to take a risk-based approach to it and understanding your own environment and understanding what is the highest level of risk that we really need to go after this and address. And some of the things like logging, logging, everything is great, but it may not be all that practical for an organization size of VA. So those are where we make risk-based decisions and, and in partnering with our regulators and OMB on, look, these are some risk-based decisions we've got to take here. That was Lynette Sherrill, the VA's Chief Information Security Officer, talking with Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. You also heard from Carrie Lee, Deputy Chief Information Officer for VA's Product Engineering Service. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook and LinkedIn. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. I'm Jared Serbu filling in. <laughs>